If you would please and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read in a moment from verses 17 through verse 32 of Ephesians 4, and I'd like you to turn there with me in your Bibles. You'll find the book of Ephesians toward the uh, definitely the last part of your Bible, uh, four small books together there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you're in Acts, go right. If you're in Revelation or Concordance, go left. And we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 um, today. It was not intentionally planned, but you know that we did not spend a lot of time during the month of March in the book of Ephesians as we had some of our outreach partners here. In fact, for the first three Sundays of March, we had guests. Um, it was also a good month as we think about uh, missions. Uh, Patricia Palmer served in Haiti and Mike and Jenny Guy uh, went to uh, Papua New Guinea. And uh, today we had a representative from the Gideons. It's good for us this month. It was unintentional, but it worked out uh, well, which is how God does things often uh, for us to uh, think about missions uh, I wonder sometimes when we have guest speakers come, Jim Lehman and Carl Kasky opened God's word for us and did that well. Uh, I wonder if they know when they come, as I, as I sit and listen, I wonder if they know what a privilege it is to open God's word in our congregation. Uh, our church has many strengths and many weaknesses. We will own them all. But one place where the evidence uh, of God's grace is, is in the congregation's a value and appreciation for the unfolding of the scriptures. There is no place on earth I would rather ask people to open their Bibles than here uh, in this church. And uh, I don't know if our, speak, if our guest speakers know that. I'm sure they find it out as they stand before you. Now, let's read God's word. Shall we? Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul writes this. And so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. 
I want to begin with a brief poll this morning, shall we? How many of you, in order to get to church, drive over the bridge that cross that uh, covers the Little Conestoga Creek on Stamen Road? How many of you to get to church drive on that bridge? If you come from Willow Street or South, you probably do. That's good, a number of you. Um, I drive over that bridge often, and I'm thankful for that bridge. In fact, uh, I'm more thankful for it than I used to be. And you probably know the reason why I'm more thankful for that uh, bridge than I used to be, because uh, it was not there for a long time, or at least it seemed like it was a long time. Do you remember the Sunday? It wasn't that long ago when Pastor Scott stood up and as part of the announcements, he said, the bridge is finished and the congregation cheered. I thought a charismatic revival had broken out. Uh, I show pictures of babies when babies are born in the church and people go, and, and uh, occasionally if we sing a song particularly well, someone might say, Amen. And when our children's choir sing, usually there's just a polite smattering of applause. We, we don't want to clap for them, but we want to encourage them, so we just kind of, maybe. Uh, but when the bridge is done, when the bridge is done, we cheer, we applaud. <laughs> Uh, it took a long time to fix, didn't it? So long, in fact, that it took me a week or two uh, after it was done to remember not to take the detour through town. Uh, con- bridge construction is not speedy. It's never speedy. Uh, and in that regard, it's a lot like what's written in these verses. The subject of this book, uh, of this section of Ephesians that I just read, is change in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ which, like bridge construction, can sometimes be an agonizingly slow process. Uh, We are not decisionists. That is, we do not believe that Christianity consists in just making a decision to become a Christian. It involves life change. Uh, Becoming more like Jesus Christ, which is a slow process. It's excruciatingly slow. I read this passage this morning. It talks about putting off and putting on things. Um, what progress are you making here in, let's say, uh, only saying things that build others up? Are you making speedy progress in eliminating unwholesome speech from your language, from your mouth? <laughs> uh, in your anger, don't sin. How, what kind of progress are you making in your uh, sinful anger and how it expresses itself? It's slow process. Some of these things that I read in the passage, it feels like some days I'm making backward progress in these things. The slowness of this change is one of the reasons why people doubt Christianity or doubt their faith. If I'm really a follower of Jesus Christ, they might say, and have really been forgiven, then why do I still struggle so much with these same sins? My faith must not be real. A real Christian would not be struggling like I am. Uh, You know the name John Piper. John Piper, I recommend his books. I quote him occasionally. A couple of years ago, a young man was with John Piper and asked him uh, if he ever has any doubts about God. Ever doubt God? At that moment in time, John Piper and his family were going through uh, grief. Uh, His daughter-in-law had delivered a stillborn baby. Terrible, terrible tragedy. This young man said to John Piper, do you ever doubt God? And he said, yes. I do doubt when I think about how slow I am changing. 
This glacial pace of change is one of the reasons why people walk away from the faith or don't embrace Christianity in the first place. If Christianity is supposed to make you a better person and it doesn't work, why should I bother to pursue it? Why should I keep going in it? Uh, If Jesus spoke so much about love and so many of his followers are just mean, why would I want in on that? Now, I know that criticism can, can be warped. It, it, it can be an excuse. No follower of Jesus Christ with any sense claims ever to be perfect. Uh, but enough of us act like we're better than everyone else that it makes outsiders ask those questions. Why would I want to be a Christian if it doesn't do anything, at least in your life? I want to spend our time this morning... Um, in verses 20 through 24 of chapter 4, this passage that I read, this, these verses move Paul's argument forward about living a life that is worthy of the gospel. And the way they do it is by focusing our, our attention on the decisive break that we make with the old life. We're in the process of moving from the old life to the new life, the life that bears all the marks of our sin, to the life that bears the marks of Jesus Christ. And the break between the old life and the new life is decisive, despite the slowness of change. And despite the challenges of moving the new life, we are still focused on that and still pursuing it because our break with the old life is permanent and decisive. I want to show you from the text this morning why that break is decisive with the old life. Three reasons, as a matter of fact. And and I think these are useful, and I think they're helpful from the text, because it gives us a new perspective on what it means to live a new life. Because most of us, I think, have an, an erring image, a wrong picture in our mind when it comes to living a new life or making wise decisions. Let me illustrate that. I used to spend a lot of time... When I was a little kid watching Looney Tunes, remember Looney Tunes? Uh, every day when I was in elementary school, I'd come home and uh, at least for half an hour, uh, I would watch a day Looney Tunes. And there was a scene uh, repeated at least once a week in these cartoons. The villain in the story was trying to make a decision. Yosemite Sam. Yosemite Sam standing over Bugs Bunny's hole and he's got a cannon uh, place aimed down into the hole and he's got the cord that makes the cannon. I've never seen a real cannon that explodes with the pull of a cord, but he is trying to decide if he's going to pull the cord and blow that varmint to smithereens or not. And while Yosemite Sam is trying to make this decision, you know what happens. All of a sudden on his shoulders appear two tiny little Yosemite Sams. One is wearing red pajamas and has a pitchfork and horns. One has a white robe on and a a halo. And and, and the little devil, Yosemite Sam, tries to convince him to do it. And the little angel, Yosemite Sam, tries to convince him to be good and not to do it. Uh, Do you you remember scenes like that from from Looney Tunes? Um, the, The problem with that image is that according to this passage, there are not two equal forces battling it out in our lives, despite sometimes how it feels. You don't have two equally persuasive, two equally powerful voices uh, representing good and evil on your shoulder. And in order to grow as a Christian, you have to get this. You have to understand this. And these verses are going to help us fix that distorted image. 
Now, here are three reasons then why the old life, why the break with the old life is decisive. Number one, your old life stands opposed to Jesus. Your old life stands opposed to Jesus. That's the point of verses 20 and verse 21. Verse 20 says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. That's the way the Gentiles live, but you did not learn to know Christ that way. Or even better, the text could say, you did not learn Christ that way. You didn't learn Christ. Now, the phrase learn Christ is unusual. It's unusual in uh, Greek language, and it's unusual in the English language as well. We usually don't talk about learning a person. Uh, we learn a language or we learn doctrine, or you learn a skill. But we don't usually use the phrase, I learned him, or I learned her. You don't, you don't use personal uh, uh, objects with that verb, learn. This is a reminder, I think, though, to us of the personal nature of Christianity. We believe that Christianity involves a real, personal encounter with Jesus Christ. This is one of the ways that Christianity is unique. Um, Buddhists do not talk about learning Buddha. You do not learn Allah or learn Muhammad, but you do learn Jesus. What's even more helpful here is, as Paul reminds the Ephesians, how they learned Jesus. Look at verse 21. It says, surely you heard of him and were taught in him. These Ephesian believers did not hear Jesus speak personally while he was here on earth. They heard Jesus, though. They learned Jesus, though, as gifted men and women taught them about him. Now understand this from, from Paul's perspective, what teaching and preaching in a congregation is supposed to be like. It's astounding. He believed that teaching and preaching are the vehicle through which you encounter Jesus Christ. So, so what I'm doing now is not just giving a lesson or presenting a theological lecture or putting together some, some helpful ideas. Paul's expectation is that when you leave the room after hearing somebody unfold God's word, his expectation is that you would say, I have seen Jesus Christ. I have in the unfolding of God's word, I have encountered the risen Christ. I have seen and I know Christ. Now, Paul goes further in, in verse 21 and tells us why this encounter is so important and why we value the preaching of God's word and why the Gideons are so uh, uh, want to put the Bible everywhere. He, he says, verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. This is a central, uh, central tenet of our faith. Jesus is embodied truth. What's interesting here is that Paul uses the word Jesus alone, which is unusual in the book of Ephesians. Usually it's Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus or Christ Jesus. Here it's just Jesus alone. Why? Because I think Jesus, uh, Paul, is trying to tie truth to this historical person whose name is Jesus. We believe that, the, that Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem during the reign of Caesar Augustus and who worked as a carpenter for most of his life and who spent three years traveling and teaching and working miracles, 
who was crucified with, by the Romans, we believe that according to his word, as he said he would, he rose from the dead and that he is the center of the infinite God's revelation of himself. Like he said, he said, I am the truth. We believe that the truth is evident in everything he said, everything that he did just by virtue of his existence. He is truth. And in every way, we seek to build our lives around Jesus Christ. And we love this book because it tells us about him. And everything we do in worship and at work and at home, at play, is to be centered around him. And everyone who ignores him is lost. The truth is in Jesus. Now, this this standard is is one of the ways that you can measure uh, your friendships. Or the health of your dating relationship. To the extent that your friend seeks to exalt Jesus and uphold him as the standard of truth, as the center of life, to that extent is your relationship healthy. Uh, It should be your goal in every relationship that you have. Uh, with small group members, with prayer partners, with your, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, to help one another see the magnificence of Christ. Ask yourself, this is a great test of your leadership. Do people or your friendship, do the people that I know know Jesus better because I am in their life? Do they think more highly of him? Do they have a, a better view of the magnificence of Christ because they know me? That's that's Paul's goal, and and he reminds them of it so that they can see anew and afresh how diametrically opposed to Jesus the old life is. You you have not heard, you, you learned Jesus, you did not learn the old life, and Jesus and the old life are diametrically opposed. There is no sense in which, in Paul's thinking, you have two forces on your shoulder speaking to you, and one of them is Jesus. Uh, He is more central to who you are and what you've been taught and what you know. Uh, When I was younger, we used to go uh, a lot as a family to Old Forge, New York, uh, which is a, a tiny town in the Adirondack Mountains. Uh, my dad's boss uh, owned a cabin up there, and he would let us go and borrow it. And we went, we would go uh, frequently and go uh, stay in the cabin and do woodsy things up there in the woods. And one of the things that we always enjoyed doing is uh, uh, climbing a mountain. There was, it, yeah, climbing a mountain. It wasn't like the Alps. It was a, it was a, a hiking trail that went up. Uh, uh, and you started at the bottom, and you ended up at the top of a, of a, it was more than a hill. If you've been in Colorado, it wasn't a mountain. It's this big. All right. It was, took us a while to get up there. Um, how rugged was it? My grandmother did it, but it was hard. I just, I'll say that, okay? I just want to say that. When you get to the top of this mountain, it's all stone. Uh, the, uh, you get above, uh, uh, the trees are not there, and, and you're kind of on the cliff, and you can see a long way. And on top of this mountain, even, there's an observation tower. I remember being a kid and climbing up this mountain and you get out into the trees and you're standing on this rock and there's a ledge and there is uh, behind you a big steel set of staircases, a staircase, and you can climb it up to the observation tower. And there we'd be on top of this mountain, the wind would be blowing, and you'd climb up the steel stairs. And you'd get into the observation tower and there was a ranger up there and he would talk to you about what you were seeing. 
Old Forge, New York is at the end of, uh, of a series of, of lakes that are connected by, by channels, five lakes that are along. It's a beautiful part of New York State. And as you stand up there in the observation tower, you can see all of the lakes. And, and, and from that perspective, they, they don't seem that far away. You, you can see the whole thing at once. And it looks like, you know, there's not much distance. We found out how much distance there was, though, one day when we decided to canoe through those lakes. And what looked like, on the top of this mountain, a very small thing, a very short distance, we found out when you were paddling uh, on top of it, is a lot farther. This is the way it is with knowing Jesus Christ. At one point in time, if you don't know him, he may seem very small and very insignificant. But as you get closer to him, as you hear and know him, as you learn Jesus, his immensity comes into closer view and better perspective. And who he is stands diametrically opposed to all these things in the old life that we're going to unpack in the weeks that are to come. Now, now the rest of this passage, what happens in verses 22 through 24, is that the uh, Apostle Paul unfolds what they were taught, what he did teach them about Jesus. And here we find in these verses, I want to give you the second and the third reason why this break with the old life is decisive. Uh, Reason number two is your old life is part of the past. Your old life is part of the past. Now, um, I know that this, this must seem obvious, right? If you think about the phrase, your old life is part of the past, it's a genius statement, isn't it? Uh, not really. But I want to show you how that's true. And Paul describes in these verses something that has happened in the past when they became followers of Jesus Christ. Something that happened in the past that they're living out right now. Now, <laughs> I'm going to ask your indulgence this morning, and I'm going to ask you, we're going to dig carefully into what Paul says in these verses. And I want you to think for a few minutes with me here. Now, in verses 22 through 24, Paul hangs his thoughts on three key verbs. For you grammarians out there, they're infinitives. They're infinitive verbs in Greek. They're infinitive verbs in English. An infinitive is a to-be verb, to live, to run, to laugh, to sing. And those three verbs are here. In verse 22, it says, to put off. Then in verse 23, it says, to be made new. And then in verse 24, it says, to put on. One of the challenges of this text is understanding whether or not Paul is speaking about something that has happened to them in the past, or if he is describing something that they must do right now. That is, have they already put off and put on, or must they now put off and put on? Uh, most translations take one view. I'm going to present the, the first one uh, right now. Uh, uh, the idea that what Paul is describing, that he's describing something that happened to the Ephesians in the past. Now, the reason that I'm going to explain this to you is because it's important for Paul's understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Paul, again, may be speaking about something that happened to the Ephesians in the past. That is, he taught them before they were Christians in the process of introducing them to Jesus Christ, uh, that their life was corrupted by deceitful desires. That's what he had taught them. 
your old self, your former way of life to them speaking as not believers, if they were not followers of Christ, your way of life is corrupted by deceitful desires. Now, any time that you talk to anybody about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to speak to them honestly about their natural condition before God. Human beings are by nature alienated from God and separated from Him. We live in a state of perpetual rebellion against God. He, he made us to, in His image. And in the world He made, we're to walk in His ways. We're to love Him and to serve Him. But instead, we all, like sheep, have gone astray and we don't follow His ways. We live naturally corrupted lives. You have to tell people that. Jesus does not, did not come to earth to, make, to give people a better life. <laughs> he didn't come to life to, to uh, help you fulfill your purpose. He didn't come to help you uh, feel better about yourself. Jesus Christ came to earth because without him, we are condemned as uh, under God as objects of his wrath because of our rebellion against him. Paul may have been saying this may Paul's evangelism. Your life right now is corrupted by deceitful desires. You, you can imagine here Paul saying to them, you are a liar. And the Ephesians say, yeah, we're, we're liars. Paul says, you are adulterers. And they say, yeah, we are. You're thieves, Paul says. Yeah, we are. And Paul says, you've got to put that old life off. And how do you put that old life off? You put that old life off by coming to Jesus. By recognizing what he did on the cross, that he died as your substitute, that he bore the wrath of God for you, and you must be renewed. You must be renewed by turning to him, by believing in him, by trusting in him. In fact, uh, he, he might have said, turning to Jesus is like changing your clothes. That's what put off and put on in this text means. We're, uh, it's lawn mowing season. It's way early to be in lawn mowing season already, isn't it? Uh, some of you, um, do, do you, do you have lawn mowing shoes? You know why you need lawn mowing shoes, right? I have an old pair of sneakers that are my uh, shoes that I use to, to work in the, the lawn. You have old sneakers because inevitably when you mow the lawn, your shoes get green. You don't want that to happen to your new sneakers. So you wear old sneakers and those are your green sneakers. Um, I used to mow my grandmother's lawn in the summer. I wore old clothes and my old sneakers. And when I was done, particularly in July, I was a sweaty mess. Turning to Jesus Christ is like changing your clothes. You take off your old life with its stink and its sweat and its stains and you put on new clean clothes. That's the aroma of heaven. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the healing of blind Bartimaeus. You know the story, it's in several of the Gospels. Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem and Bartimaeus yells out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Blind man, begging on the side of the road. Jesus says, who is it? They, they call Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus comes. Uh, and, and the text says, uh, Jesus wants to talk to Bartimaeus. As a, and he calls Bartimaeus over. And the text says that as Bartimaeus got up, he dropped his cloak and, and was led over to Jesus. 
Now, one scholar that I know said that that cloak would have been a very important cultural representation, that that this cloak, because of its either its color or its shape or its style, was a cloak that blind men and women would wear so that people seeing them would know that they're blind. When I go visit the hospital, sometimes I have learned this system. Uh, they put on those who are visually impaired in the hospital bright red socks. If, if, if your vision is not very good, someday you go to the hospital, they'll put bright red socks on you. It's a signal to every, uh, all the, the nurses and the caretakers in the hospital that they're, you're dealing with somebody who is visually impaired. Well, apparently they didn't have bright red socks in Jesus' day. They had some sort of cloak. And Bartimaeus gets up and he drops the cloak. He puts off his old clothes. Why? Because he's blind and he's going to the man who's going to give him new sight. He doesn't need the old clothes anymore. He's going to be made new by seeing, by meeting and then seeing Jesus. That may be what Paul is talking about here. And it fits with several passages of Scripture. Romans 6 says that our old self has been crucified with Christ. In Ephesians, our old self is shed like dirty clothes. In Romans 6, it's crucified. Uh, Hannah read this morning from Colossians 3. It's a parallel passage. Listen, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul may be describing what happened in their past. (laughs) That's true. But Paul also may be talking here in this verse about what you must do now. And this is the way almost every translation renders these verses as, as, as a command. You must put off and put on. Live this reality in your life. Put off uh, lying and stealing and sinful anger and put on wholesome words and kindness and encouragement and hard work. Put those on. Uh, that may be what he's... In fact, he uses that language in verse 25, doesn't he? Look, verse 25 says, each of you must put off falsehood. So as Paul's speaking here in this passage about something that has happened to us in the past when we became followers of Jesus Christ, or is he talking about something that we must do, a reality we must live out? Some of you aren't going to like the answer that I'm going to give to that question. It's a good question. The answer, my answer to the question is, I don't know. And frankly, both of them are, are crucial emphasis in the, the, of the Apostle Paul. He says both of them in his letters. Both of those things are absolutely true. The reason we can put off an experience, lying, stealing, uh, sinful anger, is because they have been put off for us at the cross. This is where the power to change comes from. The fact that Jesus Christ, our old self, was crucified with him on the cross. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at verses 25 through 32. And we're going to look at all the ways that, these, uh, that Paul applies this to life. And if you're going to live these things out, you have to understand that it's not a little red person. It's not a little red you uh, with uh, red pajamas and, a, and, and a, 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 a tail and horns on, on your shoulder. It is something that is dead because it's been crucified with Christ. Uh, no, let, let me illustrate how, how this works, maybe. Uh, living in the old self is like putting on your lawn mowing clothes back on. Putting them back on. No sane person goes out, mows the lawn, comes in, takes a shower, and puts those grungy clothes back on. 
Or uh, in a few months, we will congratulate our graduates, our high school graduates. We'll have them stand in front of you and we'll applaud for them and congratulate them on their, their achievements. Marvelous achievement. If you graduate from high school in June, do not in August go back to school. Don't walk into the guidance counselor's office and ask for your schedule. Don't show up for homeroom. If, after you have graduated from school, you show up at homeroom the next August, they will kick you out of school. You do not belong there. In fact, you are trespassing. You have no legal right to be there. Paul says your graduation day from the old life was when Christ was crucified on the cross. Don't go back to school. Don't go back to that old life. It is part of your past which was crucified with Christ. Now, before we move on to, to reason number three, I just want to talk very briefly about this word, deceit, these words, deceitful desires. Paul wrote, it's the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. Here's what sends you back into the old life. Desires. Not just any desires, but desires, deceitful desires. James 1 says the same thing. You sin because you're lured by your desires. What you want. There are things out there that, and you see them and you want them. And you want them because you think they will make you happy. You think they will satisfy. You think you will enjoy lying and stealing and uh, 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 sexual sin. You think they'll make you happy, but they are deceitful desire, desires. No man pays a prostitute because he wants to get a disease or because he wants to get arrested or he wants to ruin his marriage. Nobody looks at pornography because they're trying to uh, manipulate, uh, uh, because they're trying to destroy the way they think about members of the opposite sex. Nobody does that. They want pleasure. You do those things because you want to feel good. But those are deceitful desires. Proverbs says you cannot scoop coals into your lap without being burned. No one goes to a racetrack to bet on horses hoping to bankrupt his family. That's not why he goes. He doesn't go because that's the joy he's looking for. He goes because he or she wants the excitement of watching the ponies run. Deceitful Desires. I, I don't spew sarcasm out of my mouth because I, I want to make you feel foolish or intimidate you. I do it because I want to appear witty and clever and cool. It's a deceitful desire. Desires are the doorway through which the old self enters into the new life. And if you're going to live the new life that Paul's talking about here, you have got to recognize how deceitful those desires are. I want that thing that is in front of me, but it will not promise what it's, what, what it's promising. It cannot give me what I think I want it to give me. Deceitful desires. Now, there's one more reason in this text why the break with the old life is decisive. We talked about this. Your old life is opposed to Jesus. Your old life is part of your past. And third, your new life comes from God's recreating work. Your new life comes from God's recreating work. This is the message of verses uh, 23 and 24. There are two phrases in this passage that talk about God's recreating work. Verse 
23 talks about being made new or maybe renewed. This is the work that is done in us by the Holy Spirit. In fact, your translation might have the word spirit in it to be made new in the spirit of your mind. Um, Maybe uh, this is a reference to the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. If this is the Holy Spirit doing this work, and I think the Holy Spirit must, if if Paul is referring specifically to the Holy Spirit, notice that we have the Trinity again in these verses. We learned about Jesus, the Spirit is renewing us, and the Father is creating us. That's actually the second type of of recreating work here. The text says, verse 24, uh, the putting on the new self which is created to be like God. He's the pattern in righteousness and holiness, just like he did with Adam when he formed Adam and he breathed into him the breath of life. If you are in Jesus Christ, God has given you new life. You are as different from your old self as your body is right now from the bodies in the ground at the cemetery. If I understand this passage correctly, it should dramatically change your image of what it means to change, to overcome temptation, to make wise and good decisions. There are not two equal forces on your shoulder. It it feels that way sometimes. It it might feel like all there is is just the, the, the bad guy whispering you devilish things in your ears. But our sense of things at that moment is a distortion. There is no even match between the old life and the new life. Understanding that changes the way you respond to sin. The the behaviors and the choices that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. These things are not inevitable. It is not inevitable that you must live out of sinful anger. Unwholesome talk is not unconquerable. In fact, if you let these verses sink in, they will adjust your perspective and the pace of change might pick up a little bit. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence this morning and we are thankful that we come through Jesus Christ who is our great, great Savior. He who is magnificent, he who is embodied truth, we come to you in his name. We come to you in dependence upon the Holy Spirit because often, Father, we don't know what to pray for or how to pray, and we are dependent upon the one who renews us. And we come to you, our great God, who is the creator, who spoke, let there be light, and there was light. You who said that and called light out of darkness, you have given life to us through Jesus Christ. We come before you this morning, Father, because we often feel uh, that the old life is, is so vocal and so strong. Change our perspective today, we pray, that we might see you and your work and Christ and his triumph on the cross from the right perspective. We are anxious to change, to become more like Jesus Christ because we see how deceitful desires corrupt lives. So change us, please. Do it through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see him in your word, as we hear and know him. Do that for us, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.